We're back for a second episode of Shed with me, Edmund. And me, Laurel. And staying with the small topics like race, we've gone for fascism, um, and poetry and its potential relations or non-relations. Um, I guess it started in a kind of struggle just to like work out where we're at, where we're at and why why we chose this and like what we do. Connecting fascism to poetry and anti-fascism, we both kind of discussed that there's a kind of perversity to wanting to connect the two, or it's it's a it's a perversity of difficultness um, to bring an art form into an urgent political struggle. Yeah, I guess it's it's the point of like you know there's a sort of when there's a general acknowledgement of like oh look this is how how bad things are. There's a kind of like easy sort of like moralism in being like we must be doing something um and i think that's like um not always helpful and i I think it um you know it's it's exemplified in in that right line about like it's almost a crime to speak of trees you know if you're not if you're writing poetry what the fuck are you doing like you're not doing whatever you can do to fight fascism and i think that's the thing like there's this sort of imagination like or imagining idea that there's a kind of potential immediate action that we could all be doing uh, which i think to some extent has like a useful function in like spurring the drive to do something anyway but it's not always helpful and especially when it's reliant on going along with previous models of how to face fascism down and how to you know how to do anti-fascism which you know in the fact that it is a counter movement is always it always comes too late you know the point should be of the point of critical theory of of any like critical practice should be to like crush it at its root and you know once it's sprouted into street movements that's you know that's like just a a little symptom like a flowering and it, it's already too late so like in that sense like what do we do what when there's so many sort of like like vectors but which we can sort of like look down and say oh look that is fascism there is there is a sort of nascent or actual fascism um and so like how how the fuck does poetry like relate to any of that and how how does sort of art generally relate to that and you know there's some quite sort of obvious ways uh, and there's less obvious ones. I guess we should begin with the less obvious ones. <laughs> or maybe with the obvious ones. Things like LD50, um, the fascist art gallery. You know that, because that also seems absurd. It seems kind of like silly, right? When, when you know, you've got a president elected in, well, obviously you didn't at the time of LD50, um, but president elected in, in Brazil, who's, you know, like openly like declared like war on communists and indigenous people, or like, you know, pointing to anywhere basically in the world you could have an example and be like this is more pressing than like some vaguely like fashy people in an art gallery so why why i guess is that important one of the things that that points to is how the the, the fields of struggle from the point of view of fascists the fields are, where it's worth struggling for example include kind of worlds that seem very close to sunny very close to home and there's a kind of a shock to the system of something like ld50 but then within the kind of wider context, it's it, it makes sense. So one of the essays that 
we've just both been reading by Stuart Hall, um, the, the Great Moving Right Show from uh, 1979. And there's a long section in there about education system and the view of kind of fascists and people on the far right that this is a system, this is kind of very symptomatic of a, of a state and of a place gone wrong. Um, and it's a site of struggle to, to, to change it and to expose it and to set it right, basically. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like interesting in the, in the in that context. It's very much about like state curricula, um, and like and you know this sort of pernicious idea of the state as like you know in really embodying like what the socialist project is, and and uh, like in the whole essay, he sort of says that that you know that's not only just like a sort of right wing bogeyman, like that's like how the left represents itself as what it does in 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 that time like or like a one dominant conception of the left like um is is as a as a state project and like you know a lot of that is about the contradictions of social democracy that essay i mean the terrain of struggle for like the the areas in which they want to sort of like develop hegemony there seems to be less focus and concern on on public on like state schools Uh, and i i think there's probably lots of things you can say about like the structure of academies and the academization given that there's like the marketization of higher education like the struggles are now taking place at a university the fascists mm. coming to speak and like the whole kind of discourse being about like universities being safe spaces like the idea of near platforming being this massive sort of like the way bigger thing that it actually is for like a particular kind of right-wing discourse and i think like that's interesting that they're uh, they're they're not saying, oh these these spaces which should be public, as in like state schools, which are actually you know not public because they're like being run by a pernicious socialist state, um, uh, are like are teaching our children the wrong thing. Now it's like, oh um, these you know spaces which you know uh, are flourishing under. Uh, under competition and under a sort of like complete marketization the 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 students that are in those are not conforming to like they're not they're resisting like being indebted mm. um and they they want to like own these spaces again um and like you know these are, are very much not the real world that's an interesting like shift that i don't know like i think there's the, the idea of shift is kind of interesting because I think it's very tempting to, in any kind of political analysis, to look back to earlier situations which parallel the present or a previous situation where there was a recession and a rise of fascism. Try to draw parallels or try to use them as kind of prophetic. Part of that is is kind of reading the history of kind of Marxist takes on the rise of fascism in, di- in different historical periods with a view to trying to understand how you might go about that again. Um, rather than choosing the right one. One of those kind of key essays, amazingly powerful piece of analysis, is Ernst Bloch's um, essay within uh, Heritage of Our Times, which is about non-simultaneity, which you can, but it's a kind of solidly dialectical view of the power of fascism and its rise in Germany and across Europe. The the idea of non-simultaneity is quite complex, but one one of the points is that it's a kind of a social re- social realities all existing within one present, but actually that pr- that the present moment is very different to different groups and different people, and that there's a kind of 
fragmentation of what world you're even living in um, so that uh, you might look back to a kind of kind of feudal world that may never have existed of a kind of of kings and everyone knew who belonged where and the economy worked perfectly for everyone and you and since then everything's gone horribly wrong kind of fissures in the present means is part of the reason why it seems so difficult to try to understand um, the rise of fascism in any, any given time I think I, I guess that his sort of fairly sort of oblique terms kind of um, map maybe onto like would sort of just read in like Danny Hayward's essay um, class separation versus separation anxiety and I think there's a very similar dynamic at work there and so he's sort of Analyzing the case of Thomas Mayer, who murdered Joe Cox, uh, and this sort of like um, like brazen and barefaced uh, like desire for sort of like a cultural and ethnic ethnic separation, right? That is expressed in like through this this violent act, but the, um, but you know that's the kind of bare face of um, Earth fascism. But at the same time, the the sort of bourgeois liberal sort of calls for unity along any kind of usually national lines right and that's why they they return to fascism always um because they're implicated with each other nationalism and fascism in that sense you know they're they're sort of pleas for unity and their attempts to sort of like force like from above uh, a unity without acknowledging the very real separation that is occurring at a class in, in the level of of class because of because at the same time a simultaneous unification of like the forces of capital um, and I think that's maybe similar to the dynamic you're describing in Blois. Alternatively because of the the, une- the uneven development um, in Marxist phrase of capitalism has obviously kind of accelerated post-war to the extent and that kind of uneven development causes almost a kind of time shifts in different parts of the world and between classes and between locations um, and those kind of time shifts mean that there almost is no synchronicity and it's and it's clearer and clearer that uh, actually trying to restore some kind of synchronicity is in itself a kind of um, anti-capitalist uh, drive and it's an anti-capitalist drive which is then you know, mythologised and given a voice or given a response within um, some fascist politics. So the positions which critique the very real immiseration of the present uh, on the terms of a some kind of a return they're always going to be like what leads to a reactionary or fascist politics right I guess in terms of um, that sort of sense of a, a ground or, or a unity which mm. you know, is always what fascism is about even when it's expressed as separation Whereas what the what a productive kind of anti-fascism can do, um, or what a productive kind of critique can do, is to examine the kind of um, domination and like immiseration that is very real for you know most of the world, and and sort of face it head on uh, in order to overcome it rather than receding. And that's, that's actually quite like an obvious point, right, of that that's what any sort of left politics should be doing, is to face down what it 
is critiquing and move beyond it rather than kind of being like, we need to step back here. My question to that would be, what is the particular power or, or reason to write poetry from the left which gives it an ability to face down, face up to these conditions and move through them and beyond them? I guess it's almost not even the question. It's part of a broader question of how does life carry on as usual? Or does how, how does how do the privileges which enable one to like be able to write poetry in the first place, how do they continue and remain unaffected by sort of like global catastrophe? Um, and I guess it's that's because of the uneven nature, maybe. Um, it's a question of kind of social reproduction as opposed to a fascist conception of a kind of antagonistic uh, reproduction for the chosen people, the chosen uh, few, and the elimination, therefore, automatically, logically, the elimination of the, kind of the people who are not, shouldn't be reproduced or in the wrong place. And I guess that is, that's a huge task, and it requires, part, part of what it requires is, is thinking and constantly rethinking through politics of care and and again like a kind of social reproduction in the face of capitalism yeah so I think I mean I guess I'll try and pull out this this quote from Hall um, in terms of talking about like the populist character of fascist movements which I think is like very pertinent you know like the Guardian doesn't use the term like far right anymore it uses the term populist mm-hmm. um, so a second factor um, is its popular success in neutralising the contradiction between people and the state slash power block and winning popular interpolations so decisively for the right. In short, the nature of its populism. But for now, it must be added that this populism is no rhetorical device or trick, for this populism is operating on genuine contradictions and it has a rational and material core. Its success and effectivity does not lie in its capacity to dupe unsuspecting folk but in the way it addresses real problems, real and lived experiences, real contradictions, and yet is able to represent them within a logic of discourse which pulls them systematically in line with policies and class strategies of the right. Um, the idea of a nation is this kind of political idea which overrides and gives coherence to contradictions. Again, it's, it's about a return. It can always return. Um, it's promised can always be fulfilled in the future. Um, one question about poetry that, I have, that sticks in my mind in the context of kind of right-wing politics is that it is a very historically a very conservative genre broadly, and it's obviously in itself contains struggles and dialectics. But um, as a genre out connected to the classical world in the kind of European history, um, and itself full of nostalgia, full of cliques and uh, elitist expression forms, which are very much the, the product of um, attempts to ex- exclude to that extent it's a very nostalgic non-simultaneous uh, poisonous medium in which it's almost miraculous that at certain times um, something different gets produced and it's very interesting to me that uh, you would go to this medium um, and this particular art form to to go against its grain. Um, um, maybe there's just a lot more deeply conservative poetry around than you might think.
one example recently. Um, <laughs> the absurd um, debacle. I like. There was uh, Dave Coates. I think it was. I don't know who he is, but on, on Twitter, like wrote like a good piece about like Toby Martinez de los Rivas, who's a sort of you know big Faber poet. Uh, he wrote this collection recently called Black Sun, um, which, you know, is kind of an obvious fascist symbol and sort of like, you know, teased out all the sort of fascist resonances of this piece of work and then there was this amazing tweet where it's like, that feeling when you spend 3,000 words trying to like tease out like the latent fascism in someone's poetry and then you realise they've written a poem called Elegy for the Young Hitler. Um, <laughs> And like there's amazing like response. Um I don't know, it's just like so absurd. He wrote a response being like, oh, I'm not not a fascist. I wrote it because like young Hitler's like meant to be quite nice. Oh and uh, was like disgusted by his own body, you know. And uh, and so I wrote this line about <laughs> just absurd claims. I realised that to Hitler a garden would have been an impossible thing. Unruly, escaping control, overwhelming its own boundaries. It's not, I think, the point of a garden. <laughs> so, as Kubitschek noted Hitler's revulsion at his own naked body, I posited the externalised image of this. A sterile, paved lust garden. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was just, I was just fucking ridiculous. And, um, yeah, I don't know, it just reminds me of, like, all the... Like, it's just hilarious, especially in the light of the recent stuff. Or like, uh, with, with Ben Shapiro, like, doing tweets about, in re-baby Hitler, I, I wouldn't kill a baby. I wouldn't kill a baby, so I wouldn't kill baby Hitler. And then, like, literally losing, like, advertising revenue for saying that. It just seems really similar. This sort of, like, half-assed sort of attempt to be like, well, young Hitler very different. I don't know. <laughs> So that's contemporary fascist poetry. Yes. But I think it also comes in in the more insidious forms. And I think mm -hmm. in, in particular, like, the sort of detached ironism of the sort of stuff that was called alt-lit at one point. And I guess, like, that became very clear that that was... Lots of the, the men involved in that were, like, disgusting misogynists, I don't know, in terms of their fascism. Um, as if, if that's a claim that can be made, but I think certainly the turn towards like a sort of detached irony as a mode of like political discourse uh, has been something that's like been absolutely latched on by fascism, and in that sense, it sort of points towards fascism, contemporary fascism's own poetics, right? And so that kind of use of irony uh, relates to understandings of kind of fascism from the perspective of. Uh, kind of mass psychology and trying to understand what's happening in in terms of whether that's through kind of fanaticism, whether it's the you know studies of particular fascist leaders and their kind of charisma, their styles of speaking, how how they're responded to, and essentially yeah, that kind of ironic distancing in which it doesn't matter whether Trump says something which is proven wrong or looks ridiculous to lots of people. In fact, there's no kind of gap for kind of liberal satire to make him look ridiculous because there's already this, this ironic power that he has. Yeah, I, I think this is like the best quote that really sums that sort of idea up is, um, you know, something we, we're talking about like the historical specificity of like 
Nazis. So obviously, like this is not historically specific, but in Minma Moralia, there's this great Adorno quote where he says, uh, "Irony's medium, the difference between ideology and reality, has disappeared." And that I feel like that's very emblematic of what you're talking about. Um, going into more detail uh, elsewhere in Minima Moralia, it says like the medium of irony has itself come into contradiction with truth. Irony convicts its object by presenting it as what it purports to be, without passing judgment, as if leaving a blank for the observing subject, measures it against its being in itself. It shows up the negative by confronting the positive with its own claims to positivity. So I feel like that's where, like, this sort of, like, irony of the alt-right has a sort of purchase in, like, in being a sort of form of, like, imminent critique of being like, look how absurd a particular kind of liberal moralism is. Um, and that's where, like, you get, like, the sort of convergence of, of that sort of critique from both sort of, you know, sort of nihilistic alt-right streams and completely bad faith, purportedly left readings like Angela Nagel um, of, of something like, you know, social justice, which is, you know, is tied up in very sin sincere, like, you know, claims to positivity, as Adorno would put it there, um, claims to have some kind of purchase on, on a social reality, which, which are very easily sort of undermined without admitting the element of truth in them with a view to sort of like doing what any sort of critique should do, which is, is move it beyond that rather than regress into being like a, a purely disintegrative form of, of critique. Uh, which is, I think it's very easy to talk about like a contemporary form of fascism such as like, the alt-right or like the Proud Boys or you know that sort of broad, you know very particularly American I think brand fascism or para-fascism. It's very easy to describe that as nihilistic but I I don't know how much it is nihilistic because it is clearly invested in some values and I think this is what you were talking about, about some return. I think there's like a pretense to pretense to like an entirely disintegrative critique which then coheres again in the form of like re reasserting a border uh, reasserting the nation state as you said this like this this promise which is always there uh, and i think this is very much the case with so when i was when we were reading stuart hall essays i mean i guess one of the key dynamics that he noticed was like the rights increasing mobilization of law and order discourses so you know the hysteria around mugging and like you know people that have done nothing wrong being having property taken from them um, mm. and you know that affecting ordinary working class people white people right working class white people i mean um and as that was being you know done by a racialized subject and and so like when 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 I was reading that, I was sort of like, well, I don't know if this, this holds right, this... I don't think contemporary fascism is invested in law and order in this sort of way, but then I kind of thought again, so I was, I was originally thinking about about this kind of nihilism, but also about the, the struggles that have emerged against, seemingly against the state and, and capital, in terms of, like, you know, as you said, it's very easy to have a particular form of fascist anti-capitalism and it's also very easy to have a very um, a fascist form of anti-state politics and together that doesn't make a communist politics and so what it rather suggested a return to a prior form of law 
um, which is like this law has gone wrong because it is being pushed by quite a like socialist state or a one that just doesn't understand like liberty. So I, I think you know back to like hinterland, you know one of the really telling groups that he talks about is the oath keepers that you know you were usually like former police or military service who are um, committed to a form of antagonistic social reproduction which is based on breaking the law in order to uphold the constitutional law so that like again is you know it's, it's actually very visible in the structure of like the American legal system that there is this prior form of law you know there's there's federal law constitutional law and, and the state law and so you know they're not actually you know there's a, a pretense to sort of like an upheaval of the order of things but that often you know slams back down as like a demand for like you know it is a this is what populist authoritarianism is I guess the popular element is appears to be almost anarchic and then returns again as authoritarian I don't know sorry that was a mm. long spiel so what's happening with this kind of popular authoritarianism is that it's it's allying something kind of magical and gift like like the like people land nation um, to something very uh, by magnetizing lots of kind of presented anecdotal concrete kind of lived realities and obviously and again in the whole essay um, he talks about the the kind of long long work of tabloid newspapers to present this particular sense of a country. Um, and what's happened to its people. And then at particular times, the authoritarian populism takes off, but it already has this long-term base. I think one of the interesting things about, when we're talking about fascism in this broad way now, is, is that the racialization is it's almost less stark, especially if we're talking on, talking on a global scale, because I think, you know, I said before, like, the contemporary fascist project is probably the most diverse political project that there is and, and there's a kind mm -hmm. of sort of internationalism of nationalism doesn't seem easily united by particular racial logics and I know that again leads to splits within fascist fascism and like again with the alt-right it leads to like the split between the alt-right and the alt-light who are you know what the alt-right refer to as uh, you know the people who are kind of you know okay on in working with Jews sometimes uh, as long as they don't replace us. But I just wonder what what fascism can be when it begins to not necessarily rely on that kind of stark relationalization. I think it depends where the stress lies. The concentration on the idea of the individual in the kind of contemporary fascist thought and philosophy and the way that this politics seems to be working. The individual who is kind of humiliated in some way by the liberal left forces, the cultural Marxism, whatever it is. It's that concentration on the ind individual and it's that idea which connects things like the the popular writing of Jordan Peterson to kind of incel culture to um, the Oath Keepers. That's one kind of interesting strand which obviously is a, a kind of form of analysis that only goes so far but it's, I find that an interesting way again to think about a kind of fascist poetics and therefore also ways to counter it. Hmm. So I think I think one of the things that comes up is again in terms of countering a struggle that it has it has so many sort of modalities along which it operates which seem contradictory and I guess there's the, the famous Lenin quote right which is in Stuart Hall I'm just gonna get it up here which kind of expresses this 
an extremely unique historical situation in which absolutely dissimilar currents, absolutely heterogeneous class interests, absolutely contrary political and social strivings have merged in a strikingly harmonious manner. I think whether it's actually harmonious or not is, is a different question, but mm. I think, again, yeah, this takes us back in terms of it having so many sort of modalities on which it operates, it takes us back to the question of like, why was there like, um, why are we caring about some fascist or like proto-fascist or like nearly fascist or pseudo-fascist intellectuals talking in an art gallery or in a university. And usually that's counterposed with the example of being like, why do you care about these when there's people on the streets? Like being up, like people of colour. Um, and I think that's a kind of false antagonism because on the one part, you know, fascism isn't people on the streets being people up. That is that is one blossoming of what it does and by the time it's got to that point the fascism already exists or like of some kind of latent fascism already exists which makes that possible um, but at the same time you don't want to subscribe to kind of idealist or like you know or a perspective which like betrays your own sort of position as sort of like you know middle class people that are sort of semi-involved in like university on like art worlds and sort of overestimating the importance of that but I think I think like how even if they are antagonistic the sort of like you know even if Nick Land wouldn't get on with Tommy Robinson how do they functionally form part of the same whole and like what is in the middle also because I think clearly there is a gulf and like what is uniting them I mean maybe Tommy Robinson's actually could be you know higher up that scale because he's you know, actually, clearly a very canny, intelligent um, yeah. man, and that's part of his danger. He's not just a street thug. Yeah. But yeah, so I don't know where the question got lost in amongst all that. But like, when when there's all these all these varying currents, how how does one like attend to that? What can what can anti-fascist politics be? One of the strands that comes out is the idea of totality and collectivity and the competition and the separation being caught up in markets and being caught up in kind of global accumulation of value and it's fascism which is kind of successfully summoning kind of solidarities in the face of that separation and that's a huge challenge for kind of thinking about left politics and left solidarity I think solidarity is the key thing right um, and in terms of like, in terms of crisis uh, and crisis of capital accumulation, uh, crisis of, of, of reproduction when a state is enforcing austerity, um, meaning that social welfare depends on a kind of voluntaristic like model of social reproduction, that very much leaves open a gap which which is completely manufactured and see in order to be seized upon by by far-right groups in providing this particular form of social reproduction which in bringing people together it necessarily like violently separates them from others and like that's where like the left has to like you know step in and that's the point of solidarity is that like you know anti-fascism shouldn't just be a response to some people on the street it's the kind of um it's hard because it's you know it's there's a, a clear necessity for like 
the meeting of needs and social reproduction, which, you know, I think partly one of the reasons why people on the left have found this difficult is because, you know, they're over, oh, often overthinking and feeling like, actually, we, the point of, like, thinking about social reproduction is, is kind of wanting to get beyond it. It's to not have to do this. It's to not have to, like, struggle to hold ourselves together and keep ourselves alive. And so there's a, a tendency to almost not do that just in case and I think um, you know because it is also it's very useful for capital when we're like looking after each other that's exactly what the big society was about um, but actually what most people that we'd like to call fascists aren't united by any sort of like coherent political cause in that sense um, you know they're in some kind of to use the term, like a community always sounds too uh, like wishy-washy or whatever but they're you know they're looking after each other hmm. one thing that we haven't talked about is the relationship between fascism and uh, economic recession I guess we I mean we have talked about uh, immiseration um, but particular kind of cycles of capitalist growth and therefore cycles of governments um, imposing austerity uh, on populations um, and it, it, this is a kind of a long view of kind of the, the relationship between these two these two things and it's a kind of from a Marxist perspective a very tempting and a very easy and quite often a very illuminating way of thinking about the relationship between um, historical points and drawing periodizations and it's very applicable now in the, in the sense that has been a, a period of austerity opposed across Western uh, countries and a period of widening divergence between the poorest and the richest in those countries, and therefore, uh, after kind of two thousand the two thousand eight crash, it's also the period of a rise of these a multitude of different kinds of fascisms um, at the same time. So that form of argument, that form of analysis, is is once again kind of bearing a lot of weight. So it would feel churlish to ignore it. Um, because, you know, <laughs> basically I kind of agree, even though I guess that Lenin quote that you've already quoted is placed in, a, in Stuart Hall's essay to kind of complicate this picture. So we, you know, might start with this kind of simple view and then complicate it. But you mean in, in terms of the long view mm -hmm. of cycles of accumulation? It definitely uh, does make sense in the sense of uh, a great, a great interwar depression. And then now I think that the mirrored arguments over whether the kind of a capitalist growth of the rate of profit is in fact constantly diminishing or whether it's a post-1970 slump that is ever deepening or whether capitalism has moved on to a kind of financial phase in which um, accumulation is happening in a way, in a kind of transformed way by moving um, the ever more future dependent fictitious capital around. The relationship between that immediately kind of complicates the picture because the relationship between all of those things happening or not happening, and you might expect to see chart an, an ever increasing um, rise of fascism over the past hundred years, but we appear to have seen a kind of stop-start trajectory so far. Although perhaps that's still to come. Yeah, I mean, I think given that it is, you know, we're having so much trouble articulating either, you know, like what exactly the Henry fascism is and how to stop it 
um, like I can see like the tendency to want to like void responsibility by taking like up an ironic position. I guess like um, you could take the opposite tack, which I think is what Lisa Ishka does um, in like her anthology. Uh, well, her latest book, the anthology of poems by drunk women, um, which is it. It kind of like it does seem like stylistically and formally it is very purposely a response to to these sorts of ironisms, as well as being you know deeply invested in a, a particular kind of like historical communist poetics, and it's you know almost Brechtian in its sort of stark like. Mm, not like naivety but like what could strike one as naivety or like you know it's willingness to actually be like you know Horst Seehofer is a fucking prick or whatever um, he's the German minister for the interior I think um, just check that but yeah because you like this book what yeah I know um, and I think part of that what you just described is that kind of Brechtian uh, bluntness comes across in that, um, in the the huge distance that this writing has gone beyond, um, for example, just mocking Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson and Trump, um, and yet those people are kind of named, um, but that that uh, the bluntness has kind of skipped, has faced down and gone beyond the the kind of um, irony already being deployed um, by these by these fascist forces so yeah I mean it's obviously not just straightforwardly sincere right but um, I don't know I just read this poem because I think it's excellent I think it's like a response to um, the far right responses to um, I think there was like some incidents of um, sexual assault, assault um, apparently by migrants in Cologne. This was then seized upon by um, the AfD uh, Alliance for Deutschland, is that right? Uh, the German far right party, um, as like, you know, an example of like, you know, these hordes coming in that we need to stop. So, um, and the kind of development of like a nationalist, a particular nationalist rhetoric, um, which was explicitly chauvinist and I think that's what this this collection deals with is the kind of like how a kind of articulation of like gender roles like emerging from some idea of a state of nature is like a core part of like these research nationalisms um, but yeah I'd read it um, rather groped in Cologne than marry a man that's my new year's resolution Yes, you heard right. Fucking suited RFD groom defending me with your might. Man of status, your soul eaten up by fear. Domestic acronym, make room. Hands off my country. Um, yeah. No, I guess I don't really need to say anything about that. After. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a good place to end, although no doubt with this.
Black.